0: We pray you will be blessed by today's message. Invite you to take your copy of God's Word now and turn to Luke chapter number 16. Luke chapter number 16. One of the best works of fiction I have ever had the privilege to read is Marcus Zusak's book, The Book Thief. It weaves together an amazing tapestry of life during World War II in Europe, particularly in Nazi Germany. Interestingly enough, the book is told from the perspective of death. Death is the narrator of the book. The parable that Jesus offers in our text this morning centers around death. The moments before, during, and after death appears. So it seems to me, as we continue our trek through these campfire tales this morning, that the text before us should be entitled Death's Tale. Let us pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks today for your word. And Lord, we know this story. We have heard it so many times But today we pray that you would enable us to see it afresh with new eyes, with receptive hearts, with a finer understanding of what you were trying to say to the nomad disciples that were gathered around you that day so long ago and are gathered here to hear from you now. Lord, give me wisdom and words to speak to all who have gathered to hear from you today as we make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Though we do not wish to acknowledge it, death is constantly around us. It is wholly appropriate that the travel narrative includes a passage like the one we are examining this morning for we are constantly traveling traveling with death as a companion as it has been said from old we find ourselves in in the midst of death and yet there is life indeed It is our failure to acknowledge death's presence in life that will have a dramatic effect on one of the two foci in our tale this morning. For you see, there were once these two men that lived at opposite ends of the economic, social, maybe even religious spectrum. One of these two men had everything life had to offer, verse 19 tells us. He had immense wealth that allowed him to dress in the finest fashions of the day. He had such wealth that in a society where most people barely subsisted in what they had to eat, This man feasted sumptuously every day. I mean, imagine that most people are just glad that they got a little bread, maybe some meat from from time to time, certainly not every day. And this guy is feasting like he's at a barbecue with every kind of thing on the grill day after day this man lacked nothing and at his gate was another man named Lazarus verse 20 through 21 tells us a lot about Lazarus and for that matter the rich man look with me and at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. First, notice this morning that the text tells us that Lazarus was laid at The rich man's gate you and I would hear that word laid and we would think about how we lay something down we generally do not lay something down with abandon we generally place it down I mean when when you think about uh, putting a baby to bed you say I laid the baby to bed God forbid it was scarlet was small God forbid now if I just drop scarlet into the bed No, Scarlet is laid into the bed. She's she's delivered gently into the bed. The original language here, though, for the Word says that this word lay means to cast away without regard. In other words, somehow, somewhere, somebody decided they'd had enough of Lazarus they had had enough of his horrible condition and they just dropped him off they threw him off at the rich man's gate and left him there to be forgotten indeed the rich man excuse me Lazarus would feel forgotten because we are also told that he desires to be fed from what fell from the rich man's table. Beloved, do not read that and think that he is eating from the rich man's table. The word there, desires, does not imply that he is eating from what falls. He just wants to eat from what falls. Indeed, the word there means he is lustful after it. He covets what falls from the master's table he can't get there he wants to get there but he can't and so he is left hungry at the door here we have the rich man in a life of overabundance of food who is leaving one who is desperate for food at his gate wanting furthermore what makes this tale so very sad for Lazarus is that the only ones in the tale at this stage who seem to pay any attention to him are the dogs, the dogs who come and lick his sores. I cannot imagine, and it's not because I'm not a, very, a person who has a great amount of fondness for dogs. But I cannot imagine how utterly crude that was for the dogs to come and lick his sores. It's almost like they were, uh, you know, when you have a sore and your mother would say to you, don't mess with it, right? Don't pick at it. Well, here are dogs coming again and 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 again. He just wants something. He just wants some crumbs from the table. And all he gets is a bunch of dogs who keep picking and picking and picking at his sores. No rest. No rest. No comfort. No solace. No love, abandoned at the gate of the man who had it all. You know, I feel like if death were truly narrating this account this morning, it would pause and ask each of us this question Who are you forgetting today? Who are you leaving abandoned outside today? Let us not lose sight of the fact that Luke's recording of the gospel is less concerned with what we believe and is more concerned with what we do, how we live out what we say we believe. You can believe, beloved, and bear no fruit. And that is sad. Because fruitless Christianity lived over and over and over again should make one question whether there is actual belief. Indeed, the world questions when it sees fruitless Christianity if there is actually a God in whom they should believe. So once again, I ask, who are you forgetting? Who are you overlooking? Who are you leaving sitting outside of your gate today? I don't have a gate, preacher. You got a door. And even if you, even if you say you don't have a door, you have a door to your mind that affects how you treat people who you let into your mind and who you leave out. For you see, beloved, the world, except for dogs, forgot, cast aside, and ignored the beggar at the gate. But God didn't. The day came for death to meet. The beggar, verse 22 tells us. And it tells us this that Lazarus did not die alone. It, did, you t- did you see the text? It said, angels, verse 22 says, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. I don't know. I have. You know, Eliza says, I don't have that great of imagination sometimes. But I have in my mind, at the point of Lazarus drawing his last breath... And we would think that his eyes are closing and darkness is just overcoming him from every direction, that not wasn't darkness that came to him at the moment of death, but that it was unimaginable light, that it was glaring, bright light. And as the lights, he sort of got adjusted to it. He didn't see one or two or three or ten. Somewhere in the back of my mind, he has a legion of angels that says, hey, Lazarus, come on, son. You have toiled and been alone and hurt and in such pain for so long. Come and let us take you to Abraham's side. Abraham's side is a Jewish phrase for paradise. For you see, beloved, the forgotten and alone at this moment of death is remembered and embraced. The diseased is taken into the land of healing and everlasting rest. How concerned is God for the forgotten of this world? Yes, he sent angels to welcome Lazarus into perpetual light. there's another point that you might miss in this text. And that is the fact that this is the singular instance in any of Jesus' parables that he tells where someone is given a name. Someone is given a name. Lazarus. We don't even know the rich man's name. But here, the Son of God tells a story and he names the individual who has died. It's almost like it's personal. Somewhere in the back of my mind, again, I play with the fact that this isn't a parable. This is something that at some point in time Jesus saw happen in real life and it impacted him in some way. So that he recounts this tale and he gives the name of the one who the world thought Forgotten, And he lets us know that you and I are never, ever forgotten by God. God knows the name of his children. He watches over them long after you and I's ability to care for them is done on this world. God still has his children in his care. As the song says, no more a stranger nor a guest. But like a child at home, our shepherd supplies our needs. Verse 22 tells us also that death came for the rich man as well. Except this time, there are no escorting angel bands carrying the rich man into the presence of rest. No, the rich man, it seems, dies alone alone and is buried and finds himself in torment Lazarus finds relief and comfort in death the rich man finds torment indeed four times in verses 23, 24, 25, and 28, we see some variation of the word torment or its implication for the rich man. The rich man who was never in want now begs Lazarus for a drop of water from the end of his finger to cool his tongue from the torment. The rich man who kept a gate it would seem between him and Lazarus refusing to feed Lazarus even crumbs from his table now is on the other side with an unbridgeable chasm verse 26 tells us leaving the rich man being the one wanting and Lazarus having plenty. What an unnecessary an unlamentable situation the rich man finds himself in. Yet we are told how not to make the rich man's part of death's tale ours. First, beloved, we need to remember that you and I are blessed to be a blessing. Notice verse 25. But Abraham said... Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. The rich man hoarded and concerned himself throughout his life with only himself. He spent his money on feast and fine clothes when at his gate where he would have to pass in and out of day by day, there set an opportunity to be a blessing. God gave the rich man an opportunity to be a blessing. And the rich man refused to seize it beloved how often do you and I recognize when God presents us an opportunity to be a blessing you know you say I don't know well let me give you an example of when that is every Sunday every Sunday I get up here and I read the back of the bulletin essentially and that's an opportunity. You say, how is that an opportunity to be a blessing? Well, beloved, we had fifth quarter this past week. We fed the football team. That was an opportunity to be a blessing. Because you know what? Some, some of those boys, that was the best meal they had all week. We don't like to think that in Burlington, but it's the truth. We give you an opportunity to be a blessing on the 22nd of October or before then as you bring candy here to give to Children. Why is that? Because you don't know what homes those children come from. You don't know how often they are going through the grocery store line and mom and dad only know they got enough to buy milk and some bread and that's about it. And the kid is standing there with this candy array before them with big eyes and just say, I want that, I want that. And the mom and dad say, they know they can't tell the kid that they don't have the money for it. And so they just say, not now, dear, not now, dear. And we fulfill the dream of a trip to the grocery store aisle by giving them every form of sugar they can imagine. Every time we get up and announce that we're doing some project is an opportunity for you to go and serve. It is an opportunity for you to go and be a blessing beloved. You can never, ever say That God has not provided you an opportunity to be a blessing. Because it is always there. The question is, are you going to see it for what it is? Or are you going to go on past it? You cannot go with your nose up in the air, beloved. Your nose needs to be pointed down to the grindstone, in other words, and see what God's offering you. My grandmother used to say about folks who rode around with the nose up in the air, she hoped they didn't drive convertibles. She said, because if it rains, they're going to drown. Beloved, you and I have drowned in grace. And we need to share it. We need to be the blessing God intends us to be. Secondly, we need to seek to serve rather than to be served. Preacher, you've already said that. I know, you might hear it again before I'm done. You see, I find it absolutely remarkable that the rich man in verse number 24, in the midst of his anguish and torment, now recognizes Lazarus. He calls him by name. He says, Father Abraham, send Lazarus. Lazarus, who's been at the door? So he recognized that there was opportunity for blessing there. He even knew the man's name, but it doesn't seem apparent by the language of the text, and I can only go by the word of the text, that he ever fed him. But now he recognizes him. And what does he want him to do? He wants him to come and serve him in torment. He wants him to leave the comfort of Abraham's bosom and come and serve him in torment. Beloved, are you tired from serving or are you tired this morning from waiting to be served? There are there's only two options. You're either tired from serving or you're tired from waiting to be served. There's no gray in that one today, beloved. Is your life all about what you want? Or are you more concerned about others? Let us once more heed the call to be transparent, as we have seen so many times in recent weeks in the text. And see that we often wish to view ourselves in this tale as Lazarus, because we have made our peace with God. And we ignore the fact that there is a thin line between our self-focus and that focus found the same way of the rich man. Beloved, you and I run the risk every day of being found guilty of stepping across that line (coughs) in which we abuse the freedom of our redemption. And we think that because God has saved us, because we are a child of God, because heaven will one day be our home, that there is nothing else that we have to worry about. There's nothing else that should float across our mind. That we have got everything we need, and therefore we do not need to be at work in the Lord's vineyard. That is abuse of the gift. And the agency of redemption. Let us not be guilty of it. So how do we seek to not be guilty of it? Well, let's look at the rich man's final request. And he said, verse 27, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if anyone should rise from the dead. First beloved we need to see here that the rich man, after failure point number one, is still expecting Lazarus to come and to serve him again. He's calling Lazarus not to come to torment, to put water on his tongue, but to go back into a place which for Lazarus was torment, this world, and serve the rich man yet again. The rich man here is speaking from a point of privilege. He thinks that he has the privilege to ask for Lazarus to go and serve him. Beloved, as a child of God, we don't have privilege. The only privilege we got is to come boldly before the throne of grace. That's it. All our other privilege is cast away. I will tell you that there was no place in life I felt more privileged than in my grandmother's house. I ruled that joint. And on our first Thanksgiving at home together, I was in my grandmother's living room, and she was surrounded by all of her boys. And all the boys, wives, and significant others were in the kitchen washing dishes. And I called to my grandmother's kitchen and I said, Eliza, would you bring me a glass of tea? I spoke from the point of privilege. She responded back and said, Are your legs broke? My grandmother didn't take kindly to that. I think at that point, though, my grandmother knew that I had the force I needed in my life for when she was gone. Beloved, you and I will say we don't do that, but yes, we do. You and I think we're privileged on a whole host of fronts that I ain't even got enough time to get into this morning. We may think we're privileged for any number of reasons, but again, I say to you, the only privilege that you have once you meet Jesus is the privilege of coming boldly before the throne of grace. And let me add one more point. You have the privilege of serving the Most High God. And that's about it. Secondly, I want you to notice the stern warning of Father Abraham to hear and to conform to Moses and the prophets. Moses is the personification of, of the law the prophets serve throughout Jewish faith as an explanation of the law you and I very often do a very good job following the dictates of the law we don't lie we don't steal we don't kill we don't do any number of things and yet we fail we fail far more often than we would like to acknowledge or even realize the wider ethical dimensions that have been exposed by the prophets concerning the law. The law allows you and me all the time to point fingers and say, look what they're doing. Look what they're doing. Look what they're doing. They're going to hell. Look what they're doing. God doesn't love them. Look what they're doing. The prophets hold a mirror before us ever. And as we point our finger at whoever it is that we want to point it to and say they're doing wrong, the prophets put the mirror before us and the finger comes back at us. And it says, have you thought broader about this? You know, that's essentially what the Sermon on the Mount is. The Sermon on the Mount... Jesus taking the ethical dimensions of the prophets and expanding them. You have heard it said, you know what Jesus says? Thou shalt not commit adultery, but I say to you that if you look lustfully on another, you might as well go ahead and pluck your eye out. That's it, beloved. You and I like to rest in in the gentle, gentle, gentle bosom of saying, well, I don't break the law. when Jesus says to us through the Sermon on the Mount and through the teaching here at the end of this chapter that you and I better pay attention to the prophets. You and I better pay attention to the places where it says for us to think beyond the letter of the law to the spirit of the law. Where we are called to live ethically. He has shown you, O oh man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Micah 6 8. Beloved, you and I skip over the prophets. They're not easy to read. We can handle the histories, we can even handle uh, the law. But, but the prophets, they get all sorts of weirded out for us. But, beloved, there is our roadmap. There is a roadmap that shows the world that we actually. Believe and do what we say we believe and do. So, the most surefire way I know to avoid the rich man's fate in death's tale this morning is for us to hear and do, to give life rather than to take it, to remember and to minister to the forgotten of this world, to advocate and to defend them. To not be silent in the face of their plight, for if we do not speak for them, who will? Inevitably, this will mean for us that we must take the perspective of Lazarus before torment. The rich man sort of has a perspective here, and he's calling for Lazarus to go and try to make up for some of the wrongs. And by then, it's too late. But for a moment, can you see Lazarus? Can you see Lazarus sitting there at the gate, body wrecked with sores, emaciated by hunger, and nothing but a bunch of scraggly, mangy mutts licking and irritating his sores as he watches a guy walk out the gate dressed in the finest of clothes fat and happy and ignores him. We're called to have Lazarus's perspective. You know this week I was able to go and visit Sustainable Alamance, which is an organization in Alamance County that speaks and advocates for those who have recently been released from prison. You know, I think I know a lot about different things in life, but in the course of about four hours on Wednesday afternoon, I learned that I don't know hardly anything. I learned about probation fines, I learned about how difficult it is for a newly released uh, person in, from the prison system to get an ID. I learned that if they have to, um, if they are convicted for selling drugs, that there is a tax that they must pay on their drugs and that that tax builds up with interest and fines over time so that when they come out they may have thousands and thousands of dollars in fines that they have to pay immediately and that while they're in prison if someone sends them money that ninety percent of that money is taken from them before they can even get it to go to pay their taxes and I couldn't help but think to myself we wonder why the recidivism rate is so high Jesus said, I was in prison and you ministered to me. I don't ever take the perspective of the prisoner. I don't take the time to learn what their fate is. I don't take the time to think about rural health care in North Carolina. I don't take the time to think about whatever the plight may be. But, beloved, we are called to do that. We are called to be Lazaruses to the world. And advocate for them so that the world, though they may not read the law or the prophets, see the law and the prophets lived out. So that it may be a warning to them to not take the fate of the rich man. But that they may one day find angels accompanying them into the blessed rest of eternal life. Where there is perpetual light and darkness is forever vanished. This is a step beyond simply believing the words of life, beloved. It is doing the words of life. They say, and it is true, I have preached enough funerals to know this is the fact. That our lives preach the sermons that will be delivered at our funerals. I dearly love it when a saint of God writes the sermon for me and I don't have to go hunting and pecking about what to say about them. Their life has already lived everything i got to say. And you sit there and you go, that's right, that's right. That's just how they were. That's exactly how they were. I love that. I don't love it when I got to preach the rich man's funeral. When I don't have anything to do but find something good to say. Beloved, understand something. Death will one day come for each of us. We know not the hour or the time that it will come but unless the Lord returns, death will one day come for each of us. And attached to the end of the story of our life, it will say, services will be rendered and state where our funeral will be. Will the services you have rendered to the least of these be what tells the tale of your life? When your services are rendered, may it be a yes and amen for each of us that that can occur today. Death's tale. Would you pray with me? Dear Lord, we give you thanks today for those who have finished their race and now rest in your eternal light. For the work that they have done in our world to make our world a better place. And for the example that they have shown each of us to live. The scripture says that they now rest From their labors and their works follow them. And Lord, I believe that it is our task to pick up their work. The work to the least and the lonely. The work to the unknown and forgotten. The work to the one who sits at our gate. And so I pray today, Lord, that we would heed... This parable. And we would run from this place to find the Lazaruses of this world. That we may minister to them. Speak. And move your people now we pray. In Jesus name. Amen. We hope you enjoyed today's message. Please note our schedule has been revised as of April 2021. Please join us on Sunday mornings for worship at 10 o'clock in the Sanctuary at 108 Trail 1 in Burlington or on Facebook Live. For more information and resources regarding our church, please visit groveparkchurch.net. And remember, grace abound.